Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Well, hello and welcome, and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more. Not just about the world we live in, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. The things we think. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I am Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, and our chat room monitor, Andrea, await you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a terrific chat room with some wonderful folks that join us, so Ravinder... Tell us all about it, please. We have a lovely chat room. It's uh, educational, it's fun, it's inspiring, and there's just a wonderful group of people. So do come join us. That is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. For all of our listeners who join us maybe on one of the other networks uh, that air our show, uh, the show's not live when, when they are airing it, uh, tell us, uh, can they access the uh, chat room? And yeah, uh, oftentimes in the chat room, you know, you can we get bits of advice coming about recommendations. If there's earls that are mentioned on the air, we will pop them into the chat room as well. So after the show, if you go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat, you can replay the chat room and pick up all the links and all the information. Okay, good. In this week's Spotlight, I want to draw your attention to the growing interest in thought-controlled robots. Indeed, it's not just thought-controlled robots, but thought-controlled everything. This is a rapidly expanding field. There are already thought-controlled prosthetic limbs, wheelchairs, computers, helicopters, and even genes. Indeed, Scientific American Mind... Volume 26, Issue 2, reported on work already completed this area. Quoting from their article, quote, A team of bioengineers in Switzerland has taken the first step toward this cyborg-like setup by the combining a brain-computer interface with a synthetic biological implant, allowing a genetic switch to be operated by brain activity. It is the world's first brain-gene interface, close quote. Work in 2014 led to the announcement of new synthetic mind-controlled gene switches that, via remote control, might be used in gene and cell therapies in the future. So imagine switching on and off gene expression, remotely even, and this is not science fiction. There is something that all of these new technologies share in common, and that's the real thrust of today's spotlight. Many years ago, I was introduced to biofeedback. It was new and novel, and when demonstrated, it always seemed to be from the entertainment perspective. That is, a skilled person might use their mind to operate an electric train, starting and stopping it only with their thoughts. Or they might fly a small helicopter around the room, again instructing it only with the power of the mind. All of this seems interesting, but it held little public demand except in circumstances where biofeedback was the last resort for pain control or stress management. That's all about to change. At the pace this technology is moving, 
It will not be long before we have thought-operated home security systems, computer programs that write your to-do or grocery list and so forth, television programming that interacts with your thoughts and about anything and everything you can imagine that brings about convenience. Thought-based technology has arrived. It seems it would behoove all of us to begin to work with technologies that provide thought-based feedback. I have used several, and there are some truly good ones available. It would also seem that before too long we may find ourselves imprinting our thought activity on devices designed to make all of this easier for everyone. Devices that read our minds, so to speak. Scientists have already developed a brain decoder that can hear your inner thoughts. Quoting the report published in Digital Trends, quote, Researchers at the University of California, Berkeley, have invented a brain decoder device that's able to work out what you're thinking based on neuron activity inside the brain. Essentially, the experimental system means your private inner thoughts are no longer so private. Close quote. Governments around the world are very interested in this sort of technology. For example, there is something known as Remote Neural Monitoring, or RNM, and it potentially may overhaul our entire criminal investigation system. This technology works well with a microchip implant, something most people believe they would never consider. But then, like healthcare microchips, perhaps there will be some persuasive argument that requires them. With a microchip present, the RNM could literally control emotion and dream content. But don't get too comfortable thinking that you would never allow someone to implant a microchip in your brain. For this same remote neural monitoring technology, arguably could be used with extra low frequency, transmitted via satellite, cell phone tower, and so forth. Bottom line, we may need to learn the need for biofeedback control as a defense strategy against the onslaught of unwanted neural input. More than just a convenience, perhaps it's time for you to take control of your mind. Your thoughts on this, Ravinder? I find that all so scary as you were going through that. I've got this picture in my mind of me in the kitchen with an automatic knife chopping the vegetables. But my mind doesn't stay focused on anything. (laughs) It will meander off. What the heck is this knife going to be doing as I'm watching TV, thinking about work, playing through an argument in my mind? No. Can you imagine someone operating a plane that way? Are you going to trust somebody, you know? The pilot could have had an argument with his girlfriend the night before, and then you all go nose diving. I would imagine there are algorithms that will deal with, you know, that kind of a problem. But no, that's I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> oh, my mind just raced <laughs> off with all of those possible what ifs, and then you have the stuff about um, the implants as well. You know, the sad fact of the world of the world today is that 
They have ways to persuade you that it's in your best interest. So I can bet you at least 50% of the people out there at some point would be championing it, not complaining about it, but they'll be talking about all the benefits and how it saves the children and it stops, you know, rapes going on and it stops, you know, da 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 Most people still aren't aware that the Affordable Care Act has a provision for mandatory microchipping for, you know, health care. So, you know, you read the microchip, and right now you know blood type and allergies and medical history and da-da-da-da-da-da. And, and of course, the whole idea is it eliminates, at least drastically minimizes, the amount of or the number of, uh, what should we say, mistakes made by the medical profession that lead to life loss. So, um, you know... All of these things, as you point out, do have a way of working themselves in. I'm going to go back to my IBVA system Mm -hmm. and box a little more with that character in my computer by mentally learning to control that, you know, left jab and right hook a little better. Okay. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our guest was Dr. Linda Backman and we discussed reincarnation and her investigations as a result of over 20 years of past life and in-between life regressions. Richard wrote, I find myself thinking about the range of personalities Eldon has hosted from those that are laid back They can hardly be heard to this lovely lady often running with just one question so far. I love that you ask about a person's background history. By the way, I happen to point out to you that we're getting copied on that uh, by a couple of major radio hosts now. (laughs) That's not bad. I like that, huh? Imitation is the best form of flattery. Yeah. Janet wrote, I don't get it. How can you get karma for protecting America as a soldier? If your dharma is to be a protector, as Backman's husband did in a life as a general, then you are choosing to take on karma if she is right. That seems more than odd. I just can't buy that. Well, I totally agree with your evaluation, Janet. In fact, your letter kind of prompts me, and this is an important subject, so it's worth examining further. And I, Next week, I think we'll make that our spotlight. We'll, we'll get into that one. Bruce wrote, I like the fact that you ask the tough questions instead of hovering around stories of past lives, stories that are not verifiable, or they would be headline news. Thanks for that. Mark, in dissent, wrote, I thought that more time should have been spent having Dr. Linda Backman share the past life and midlife experiences of her patients, along with any subsequent healing, and less time having her share her views on metaphysics. For me, one's interpretation of metaphysical reality, while sometimes fascinating, is subject to some subjectivism and speculation. I also detected how her particular ethical and political views may have clouded some of her judgment. Overall, though, a pleasant radio guest to whom I enjoyed listening. Glad you enjoyed, Mark. The thing about Dr. Backman was she has spent more than 20 years carrying out these investigations. As a result of which, as a former investigator, she sees patterns. It was the patterns I was most interested in in our interview. Uh, we've all heard stories of, you know, I was in past life, I was a general, I was Caesar, I was, I was, I was, I was. And we, we can read that, it's a dime a dozen. But when you have a researcher who spent over 20 years 
has conducted thousands of these types of investigations, they're in a particularly unique position to tell you what it is that they have learned that is their pattern. Mary wrote, as you said during the show, many psychologists who do not believe in reincarnation still use past life therapy for healing. Does that mean they believe the whole thing is something constructed in the mind and not real? I think, Mary, the question of real or not is just left to the patient. For a therapist, the purpose is healing, and it doesn't matter if there was really a past life or not. All that matters is, did it help their client? CB commented on Blackman's remark about the greater good. The girl with her nose and ears cut off, example, is easier to come down on a side for. However, something like Governor Jerry Brown signing the California bill into law that inoculations for children is mandatory in order to attend public school, with only a doctor's excuse to get out of it. He called the greater good of California citizens justifying any action against those who are harmed by the vaccines. All right, moving on. May wrote, I have quite a few of Eldon's CDs. Love all that he does. Rand wrote, Eldon, you may enjoy this interesting synchronistic moment I had while listening to the YouTube interview with Dr. Radin. I was listening while clicking through the random pages of the Stumble app from my computer. As you were asking Dean a question about reading the autobiography of a yogi at the 131 time marker, Stumble displayed the page showing the book, Autobiography of a Yogi. That was neat, since Dean had just also related that people experience more synchronicity after doing yoga and meditation for a time, which I do. Great interview, by the way. That would be kind of fun, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Might even be a little bit spooky. <laughs> David made this comment. Dear Ravinder, I have traveled and lived in 34 countries, so I have a fairly good grasp of the world and how it sees us Americans. Your letter, Lessons from America, and its insights, to my surprise, brought misty tears to my eyes. Thank you for sharing. Now, that was a great newsletter, Rev, and I know all about all the feedback that you receive. So, I, you know, as an ex-Brit lady, how does that make you feel? <laughs> I think that's really cool. You know, I was just being open and honest in that one, and part of it I thought, you know, I was afraid some people could be offended by because the impression of America around the world is not always as positive as we would like it to be, but no, I have definitely become a very proud American. I can see why it's the greatest nation, and uh, there's a lot to learn from it. There, is, there isn't any ideal higher for me than that of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. No apologies either. No. And Paula wrote, Kudos to you, Ravinder, for your excellent newsletter. Very informative and well-written. I subscribe to a great many newsletters, but I often find myself reaching quickly for the delete button for many of them. Not so with yours, although I admit I had deleted several in the past without even reading them. Once I took the few minutes to read one, I was hooked. I find your approach very inspiring and insightful, and now I definitely take the time to read each one that comes through. Your recent newsletter regarding America and becoming an American was just wonderful. I love it when people around the world get us. Thank you for your praises, and one last comment. 
Although I have been aware of Eldon's work for several years and have read a couple of his books, it was not until now that I found the inspiration through your commentaries to purchase the programs and begin using them. Eldon's work is very important, and he is very lucky to have you at his side to enlighten and inspire. With that said, keep up the good work, and God bless you both. Now, Polly, you got it very right. I am very lucky. And for all of you out there, if you're not getting our free newsletter, you can end that waste right now. Just go to eldentaylor.com and subscribe. You want to add anything on that? No, I think that's all really cool. You know how many times you have said you teach what it is that you want to learn? Well, I think of myself as being your number one student and for the last well, it was about six months since I've been writing these pieces you know I've been teaching what it is that I want to learn it's the, the progression in learning so I've got a long long ways to go but it's a fun ride who doesn't have a long long <laughs> ways to go walk on water and you get my attention all right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon. That's E-L-D-O-N at eldentaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate your feedback and support. Now to this week's show, Spirit, Mind, and Money, a new conversation about service and success for holistic business owners with author Don Del Vecchio. One of the interesting forms of dissonance that I have often encountered in the world of New Age parlance begins with this proposition. We are all one, share and share alike, lose the ego, and remember this is all an illusion, for separation from God is only in your mind, in the world but not of the world, be not attached to worldly things. Proposition 2. You are a co-creator and entitled to the riches of the universe, prosperity, wealth, abundance. You deserve all and you can create all of this and more. Money and fame can be yours. That new car, the swimming pool, the fancy home and so much more can all be yours. Just know it, believe it, you will attract it. Now think about that paradox. Surrender the ego and merge with the one like the Tibetan monk. And make a lot of money so you can have all the goodies you ever wanted. Detach from the worldly this and that while you do it. Now that's just a bit more dissonant than dissonant in my view. So is there some middle ground? Is it even fair to think about money and spirituality in the same breath? After all, the good book informs us that the love of money is the root of all evil. Many people today resent those with money, the so-called one-percenters, and at the same time they visualize themselves with more and more riches, actively seeking more money. They see that new Cadillac going down the road and think, that filthy rich son of a gun, boy, I'd like one of those. And what kind of thinking is that? Many people feel they can't trust the wealthy. Isn't that a lot of what we heard about people like Mitt Romney? Yet they want more money for themselves. How then does money equate when it comes to spiritual practices? Enter today's guest. Don Del Vecchio is a professional copywriter, marketing consultant, and entrepreneurial business coach. She's also been a luxury travel writer, a magazine editor, a professional kickboxer, kickboxing coach, even an astrologer. 
Until recently, these diverse careers paths shared one common denominator. They kept her close to broke. After having a child as a young single mother, Dawn spent most of her adult life developing herself through spiritual study and practice while simultaneously living in a chronic financial struggle. She attributes a change in her financial life to a change in her mindset around money. Dawn understands firsthand the painful disconnect that happens when heart-centered helpers don't address their relationship to money. And she's on a mission of sorts to address this sometimes taboo subject so that people who are called to have a greater impact with their work don't get stymied by subconscious blocks, faulty vows of poverty, and what she calls unexamined money mantras. So on that, let's get her in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Don Del Vecchio. Hi there, Elvin. Thank you so much for having me today. It's great to be here. Indeed, our pleasure. We're looking forward to this. But, you know, to begin with, we like three things. I know you're a regular listener to the show. Mm -hmm. Three things from our guest. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? So to that end, please tell us about your life as a young person. What did you want to be when you grew up, Don? Oh, that's a great question. I, 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 what did I want to be when I grew up? I don't even remember now. Maybe a lawyer or something. I remember that was one of many. Well, that's all right. I still haven't decided. <laughs> cool. Yeah, and as you can see, I've obviously sampled a lot of different careers. So um, I was born in Connecticut, and I was the first uh, child of my parents adopted, where my brother and I are both adopted, um, and uh, I was raised in a Catholic family, and I would say the one sort of uh, discerning thread throughout my early childhood all the way into adulthood was a, uh, a disconnect with mainstream thought, whether that was religion, social, or what have you. I didn't feel very... Um, uh, the, 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 the principles that I was being raised with didn't make sense to me. And you use the word, word dissonance to start this, uh, this conversation with me. And I really, uh, it's a beautiful word. I don't use it in my book, but it makes so much sense that I felt a disconnect between a lot of things. Like, for example, let me, let me give you an illustration. Um, we used to sit at the dinner table. I was born in 1965. So that was the beginning of the Vietnam era. So we used to sit at the dinner table every night. My, my dad came home from work, and he would listen to the news on the radio. And that was the era where, where they were, you know, the news was about the war and the body count and that sort of thing. And then I would go to church and learn about, you know, God and hear about how we have to give the church money and, like, all of the things there. And none of it made sense to me. I, I, I couldn't make sense of the values that I was being raised in. Even though my parents are very good people, they're very, you know, they're very religious people um, and very decent people, uh, I, I just didn't really relate. So, you know, I lived the life that I lived growing up. Well, I had to, when I was two, my, my brother came into the family and uh, Fast forward a bunch of years, and it's time for me to have my confirmation, which is a Catholic rite of passage of teenagerhood. Right. And I remember as soon as we were done with the whole ceremony and the party afterwards and stuff, I sat my parents down and I said, Mom, Dad, I'm not a Catholic. I don't know what I am. Maybe I'm a Buddhist, but I'm not a Catholic and I'm not going to go to church anymore. <laughs> and the funny <laughs> thing is, is that the whole 
Buddhist thing was just literally I pulled it out of the ether. So I, I had heard about it, but I had no idea what it was. And it wasn't until many years later that I spent you know, a great deal of time in Southeast Asia, feel very resonant with certain aspects of that culture, that I realized that actually, you know, if you were to put my hand to the fire and say, Dawn, choose a mainstream religion, it would absolutely be Theravada Buddhism uh, that's practiced in places like Thailand and Burma and stuff. So, uh, so that was my um, sort of venturing off, and then I, I went and did wild child teenager stuff, followed the Grateful Dead, came home 18 years old, pregnant. Pregnant, single, oh. young, and All right, I'm going to ask you to hold your story right there sure. so we don't get kicked sure. out. We've got a commercial. Uh, we're speaking with Dawn Del Vecchio about her life, work, and books, spirit, mind, and money. To learn more about Dawn, visit her website at Don Del Vecchio. That's D-E-L-V-E-C-C-H-I-O dot com. Okay, remember to join Ravinder and Andrea in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Gotcha by Elton Taylor exposes just how far the reach of propaganda, brainwashing, and public manipulation has advanced. You will learn about the many covert activities designed to marginalize your freedoms and educate you to march in lockstep with the agenda of the so-called elite, including advanced technologies used to subvert resistance. 1984 has arrived and the plutocracy is in charge, and most are totally unaware of just how deep the tentacles reach. They don't want you to have this book. There have been broken deals and even indirect threats designed to stop Gotcha from being published. Set for release in September, you can pre-order it now at the discount price of $19.88, with free freight to anywhere in the world. For details, go to eldentaylor.com forward slash gotcha. Don't wait, get your copy while you can. That's eldentaylor.com forward slash gotcha. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. A 
serpents love the whiskey bars, they love the romance of the crime. But didn't I see a neon sign to fester on your hotel blind? And a country road come off the wall, you swooped down on the crowd at the bar. Put me at the top of your danger list just for being so much like you are. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Don Del Vecchio about her life, work, and book, Spirit, Mind, and Money. Now, we ask our guests for three pieces of music, three of their favorites, music that has some genuine significance to them. Music is more important than most of us recognize. Music can, indeed it has, awakened forgotten memories and restored lost states of consciousness. Indeed, music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance for many areas, including investigations of human aptitude, skill, intelligence, creativity, personality, and, of course, social behavior. According to one recent study, you can even determine a person's social class by their favorite music. As such, there can be a great deal of self-disclosure in the selection of a person's favorite music. And I just love that. We don't, we don't give them advance notice. I make doggone sure, of course, if they're regular listeners like Don, they're probably already wise to this. But okay, Don, we just played Don Juan's Reckless Daughter by Joni Mitchell. What is that telling us about you? Uh. It's um, multi-layers, more coming to me as I heard you play it just now. Um, Your serpent cannot be denied. The eagle and the serpent are at war in me. The serpent fighting for blind desire, the eagle for clarity. Now, these are the Joni Mitchell's poetic ways of saying really what you addressed at the very beginning, the bypass, the spiritual bypass, the paradox of us being spirits here in the material world, to use another great songwriter's term, that was Sting, Um, we are learning how to be in this material world and honor both the eagle and the serpent, both the spirit and the body, and the mind as well. So um, this was a song from when I was 16 years old, and even then, as I've already sort of framed for you, I was questioning mainstream thought, I was questioning the way things were, and it wasn't until I started listening to poets like Joni Mitchell who were touching, pointing to some of the questions that I would un- unpack as, as an adult, uh, the, the deeper meaning underneath. What is this all about, this experience for us? So you related to it. I mean, it's an interesting piece of, what, coincidence or synchronicity that we, before the break, left off with you about to tell us that you're 18 and pregnant, and we come yeah. back from the break with Don Juan's reckless daughter. So, right. <laughs> pick it up. You're yeah. 18 and pregnant. I'm 18 and pregnant, and um, not only that, I have been in groovy California, so I know of things like home birth. I have read um, uh, the book, uh, Spiritual Midwifery, so I'm very clear that I'm not going to do mainstream stuff. I mean, after all, I've navigated up to this point, avoiding mainstream stuff, so... Um, so I tell my parents, I, I look for a midwife. I find two very highly qualified midwives willing to um, be present with me at the home birth. Um, they were hesitant about doing that for a teenager. And so I met with them the first time and had several pages of pretty sophisticated questions to ask them. 
And they said later that that was the reason why they, they realized that I, I had my, myself together. Um, and so I told my parents, look, I want to have a home birth. And my father immediately said, not in my house, you're not. <laughs> so I went to my midwife. We discussed it. We said, all right, well, maybe when I go into labor, we'll get a, a hotel room. So I went back to my parents. And I said, look, you know, I'm, I know I'm 18 and pregnant. and I don't have a lot of money, but I'm going to get a hotel room because I'm not going to the hospital unless an emergency requires it, in which case I will. And I think at that point, my mother probably grabbed my father by the ear and dragged him into a conversation that said something along the lines of, our daughter will not have a child in a motel room. So I had my son, my beautiful son, Zach, who's now 31, um, in the bedroom I grew up in, and my mom was with me. She was one of the women attending to me uh, during the labor and and, uh, birth of my son. Uh, So... From there, I went to university, got a degree in women's studies, joined a women's mother support group, mother support group of women who were having home birth. That quickly turned into feminist goddess ritual stuff, and uh, I did that until I moved, until uh, I couldn't find a job after graduation, and moved out to New Mexico, where I kick-started uh, really my first career in the world, um, surprisingly, of martial arts. So. Uh, with my son, who was six, and then quickly turned seven at the time. And so, uh, shall I keep going? You want to ask me some questions? Or? No, no. That's, uh, I, I get. I think we all get the picture. Uh, so, in the, your martial arts form was kickboxing, right? Yeah, uh, Muay Thai kickboxing. So the kickboxing with elbows and knees, the Thai version of kickboxing. All right. I'm going to fill our readers in a little bit here because I've got a question built around it. You know, so here you are today mm-hmm. and you're, you know, a business person and you work with business people and you teach them money management and uh, among many other things. OK, mm-hmm. so but for many years, you practice some what? Pretty weird stuff by the standard of most business people. Yeah. So, for example, you read Tarot, you were an astrologer, yep. mm-hmm. you had personal interests, as you say, in goddess lore, ceremonies, and, of course, you were involved in pugilism. So, yeah. here, here's the two-part question. How did you make the transition to business coach, and how often do you find your history either defining what you do now or interfering with it because, well, how can I take you seriously? Ah, okay. Well, I'm going to address the second part first. The history, how does the history, what did you say, how it's defining me now? Yeah. Okay, so uh, really, well, first of all, the martial arts, uh, not only did I practice pugilism and fight in the ring, I brought many students in the ring, and, uh, you know, I coached them and mentored them to get in the ring, so that honed my teaching skills. It also really aligned with the the value, the, 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 the desire, the intent I set, in my women's studies, which is that, uh, you know, in college, I want to help women empower themselves. I was not a person who was set to become a champ, and nor was I set to try and help people become champs. I saw fighting in the ring as a way some people chose, and developing their martial skills, including their self-defense skills, as a way to develop personal mastery and to overcome fear. So I have many stories of women who first stepped into a ring in, in a low sort of low barrier of entry practice experience in tears, 
because of the emotional charge around it, um, mm-hmm. and eventually come to, after two, three, four bouts, uh, really uh, knowing something about themselves that they didn't know before, and having a degree of self-confidence and self-assuredness in their body and in their minds about who they were that was very different than when they first walked in my gym. So that translates to being a coach and a mentor for this. It indirectly um, too. So, do you think that your boxing instilled a sort of competitiveness, and as well as the confidence that provides an edge today in the arena of money and business? You know, or do you see money and business as being competitive? I don't think it has to be. I, I really operate from a totally different standpoint. In fact, my senior thesis in university was all about um, women's competitive behavior in places like academia and how toxic that was because it was following an old hierarchical model of competition and scarcity. So competition doesn't actually come up for me that much. I believe we live in an abundant universe, but more than that, where there are many messengers delivering the message, and we're not here to serve everyone. And, and in marketing, we know this. You know, as a business and marketing consultant, I can tell you that your job is not to reach everybody, and I'm sure you understand this, Eldon, not everyone is going to groove with provocative enlightenment. Not everyone relates to provocative enlightenment, but that's okay because you're here to reach and speak to certain people who uh, resonate with your message and value your position. And, and with the World Wide Web, we're able to reach and serve a greater audience. And there are many, many business coaches, right? So there are many of us doing the same thing, different language. I'm here to serve certain people and by being real clear on my message, I can reach them more. So That's the competition piece is not a piece that I've actually, I'll, I'll meditate on that more, that you brought it up. But it's not but something you, that I've really looked at. But if you sit down with um, an SBA officer or your, your bank officer and you have a new business idea, the very okay. first thing they want to know is who's your competitor. If you, right. you Traditionally, if you go to, um, you know, a money manager, um, a business manager, they're going to advise you to copy John, or, or to follow John, uh, uh, yeah, John Paul Getty's uh, advice to, you know, the best way to success is to copy success. So they're going to want to mm-hmm. look at your competition. You don't look at competition. Where do you start from then? Oh, it's not that I don't look at it. I'm just really reframing it. It's like I, I, I do, in fact, one of the questions I ask my clients when I onboard a, cl- a coaching client is, you know, who is your quote-unquote competition and or the leaders in your industry? Because we're going to look to them to see what their, what their language is. How is that same or different than yours? Um, so it, it's not, I guess I'm addressing the, the term competition. Okay, so I, I get you. I don't, I'm not competing with them, in other words. I've got you. I've got you. I think. All right. I understand that. Now, Don, you heard the setup piece. What Mm -hmm. are your thoughts on what I called, you know, in dissonance is holding two ideas simultaneously and not recognizing that they're mutually exclusive? So the idea that we should surrender our egos, avoid attachment, accept this world as an illusion, while simultaneously holding the notion that we're entitled to create as much wealth as we want and thereby gain all the physical this and that that we choose. Uh, you know, is there a middle path or are we just caught in this dissonance that, you know, prosperity is all about having more than the person next to me? 
uh, because isn't that, after all, what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to have the better car. I'm trying to have the bigger house. I'm, you know, trying to have more money, uh, et cetera. I'm certainly not starving. Most people that struggle with finances, uh, they're not starving. They're they're not, you know, in poverty. They're not living, you know, in some dearth home uh, hovel in, in Africa. Um uh, you know they have they have health care available to them, and you know they have their their warm beds to go to. So, how do you see this? Uh, is there a middle path between the spiritual approach of non-attachment and the law of attraction, if you will? I I, I believe there is, and I love that you use the term middle path because as we've uh, we sort of danced around a little bit, Asia and the Buddhist your Buddhism, yes, uh huh. Teachings, and certainly that's exactly what they address. And it's exactly what my book addresses, which is why I call it Spirit, Mind, and Money, um, because to completely detach ourselves from worldly desires or worldly um, requirements, really, uh, is, you know, I live in Sedona where I see a lot of people doing that side of the, uh, what do you say, that, that extreme of the, okay. of the pendulum of like, mm-hmm. you know, it's all good, it'll all work out, if it was meant to be, it'll meant to be, and money isn't important to me and all that stuff, and what happens is they struggle terribly. And and this is a dense reality we are living in, so there is something to be said for having the things that we need. Now, but don't, the other don't side, you find, I don't want to interrupt you, but don't you find, even with those people who say, oh, money is not all that important, that they want more money? Oh, yes. Yeah, okay. but there's so, so much confusion. This is who I was, right? This is, yeah. the, this is the community that I really relate to. There's so much confusion around what that is. You see, as long as we say we, we do our meditations, we light our incense and our candles for abundance, but we don't actually address the subconscious beliefs. We actually have that mon- love of money is the root of all evil and, um, and the habits habits of saying things like money isn't important to me, I just want to help people, all of that stuff, we're not really addressing the reality of living in a physical body where there is a place where we can be spiritual and live in abundance, whatever that means to you. It doesn't mean you have to have millions and hog it all for yourself. What it means is to live a life where you're not living hand to mouth and in a constant spiral of struggle. Okay, and, and and so the middle path really requires redefining how we look at money. So do you promote the love of money, or how would you define money? Um, I define money as energy. Money is an energy. It's a system of exchange. And so it's really not about the love of money. That has nothing to do with it. It has, it has to do with um, wanting to have the enough ability to engage in that system of exchange to live our sole purpose, whatever that is. And Let me for try a lot something of the- on you if I can, Don. I, 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 had a, I, was, I had the good fortune of having a very wealthy mentor at a point in my life who explained to me that money was just stored energy. He explained it this way. You know, I go to work in the morning, and I work eight hours, and at the end of that day, I leave and I go home. And maybe once a week or twice a month, I get a paycheck. And the paycheck represents 
how I've invested my energy, what I have done with my time. Uh, if I sat at home and watched TV, well, the paycheck doesn't, There, there is no money for doing that. So money is my stored energy, he said. Now, he suggested that as our stored energy, what we want to do is multiply it. We want it to work as hard for us as we work for it. How, how does that kind of a definition fit with what you do? It, it absolutely fits with, with, with what I do, although I would say that uh, the work I do in terms of business coaching and consulting and, and the message of my book don't go that far along because first we have to get people getting out of struggle, the people that I'm speaking to, out of the struggle of working 60, 70 hours a week to build a small business and serve others and still not get ahead before you could think about even investing your money to get your money to work for you. So okay, one step has to come before the other. Let's discuss wealth for a moment. Can a person have too much I mean, in the spirit of share and share alike, should the wealth of men like Bill Gates be redistributed among the masses? And if it were, do you believe this would solve any poverty issue? That's a really good question, and it starts to go into some of the other issues that I definitely don't um, bring up much. In, in, in my personal life, I do, but um, there there is a small percentage of people who control the vast, majority of wealth on this planet, and that has set about... 80 families, over 90%. Yeah, and so that is it's quite appalling. And if that were redistributed, would it change the face of the earth? Of course it would. Of course it would. And simultaneously, my message, my desire is to help the people who want to be of service to recognize that by staying disempowered and out of money, you know, not having enough money by charging too little for their services, etc. It's not, that's not, this is not going to solve that problem. That's a macro issue. If, by staying broke, we don't keep that small percentage from distributing, we don't uh, encourage that small, that, that fair distribution. But what we do when we step up and we say, look, I am willing to charge the value of the transformation I offer, and I'm willing to live in a level of abundance that allows me to hire other people, for example, to distribute my own wealth, to contribute to charitable causes, then we step up more empowered, able to serve, instead of being broken healers, broken broken transformational leaders. So if I've got you correct, you can have too much money. And At some point. Yeah, it's, yeah. I, mean, I suppose okay. it is. It's not really and, a conversation. And when you talk about, I'm sorry, say that again. Well, it's not really a conversation I engage either in my book or my clients. I mean, there are a few people on the planet who have, you could say, too much. Right. Absolutely. And money is power, and and they use the power. But so you would you would um, be in favor of uh, redistribution of the wealth with maybe the 80 richest families that control 90% of the wealth, but not redistribution of wealth below that? And or should we redistribute all entirely throughout the world? So those poor people that live in those hovels in Africa uh, have as much as, uh, you know, the poorest of us 
or more? You know, I don't, I don't know that I feel prepared to answer that question, Eldon, and here's why. Because I do know this. When we simply give money without giving the tools, skills, or abilities to value it, it often becomes squandered. So there is a theory that you can redistribute all the wealth, and in a few years, the few who have it will have it again. Amen. So, Amen. Yeah. So I, I really can't. I, I say, yes, there's injustice, and I don't think the solution is that simple. I think free energy is a solution that could simply change things. Um, <laughs> I, I but, agree. But, yeah, but L- that let me particular ask, solution, I don't know. Let me ask you this, then. People of wealth have been vilified, especially since the Occupy, uh, Occupy Wall Street movement. So, so how many of us do you think carry around some self-sabotaging inner belief that money is inherently evil, that, you know, you don't want to be a part of that that elite group, uh, that, you know, uh, where we may envy it, where we may covet it, at the same time we push it away because, you know, it is just it is just dirty. It's just, you know, they, they must have done something crooked to get it. They, you know, it's just, yeah. you, 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 you deal with a lot of that, I know. So, what do you think? Yeah. Should we be vilifying a- wealthy people, or should we be looking at the guy with that new Cadillac and saying, "Wow, that's for me. I'm going to have one of those too." Yeah, I, I think I think absolutely. First of all, your first question that there are absolutely a lot of people who are vilifying the wealthy, and I think I feel for sure money expands who you are. So if you're a creep, guess what? You're going to be a bigger creep with more money. Um, if you're greedy and insecure and you want to hoard, then you're going to be greedy and insecure and hoard more with more money. Um, this is that disconnect, or what I call, what, what I, I borrow the term spiritual bypass. Right. There is confusion around it. There is a huge gap between the, the people I'm talking to who are, or the people who are saying, oh, those greedy bastards on Wall Street, and the few who have the money. There's a lot of room for us to live in abundance and not be greedy hoarding one percenters, if if you know, or whatever that 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 stereotype is. It's you know, the problem with that different. 1% model, I think, uh, Don, is that we don't see them driving the Cadillac on the road. You know, what not. we They're see is that middle class person, uh, they might be upper middle class, but they're still driving themselves, you know. They're not living in a mansion, they just have a nice home. And right. that's, that, yeah, that, that, I think, further compounds how we get confused about the value of money. Your book is a great book. I think it's a great read, and I think anybody that uh, is thinking about going into business particularly, or is in business, that struggles with money, uh, should give it a read. Don, we have a Thank commercial. You. When we get back, I'm going to ask you more specifically about your book. If you would like to know more about Don Del Vecchio and her book, Spirit, Mind, and Money, be sure to check it out at Amazon Online. Uh, is it at Barnes & Noble as well, Don? No, actually, it's, the book is not published yet. It doesn't right. actually publish until the 19th. And then at that point, it will start on Amazon. At some point, it will go. Well, you have for... a pre-sale on Amazon right now. You could pre-buy it now. I know that. Okay, we have a video for you during the break featuring our guest titled Seven Secrets for Growing Your Business. You can view it by joining the chat room. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment 
with Elton Taylor. Gotcha by Eldon Taylor exposes just how far the reach of propaganda, brainwashing, and public manipulation has advanced. You will learn about the many covert activities designed to marginalize your freedoms and educate you to march in lockstep with the agenda of the so-called elite, including advanced technologies used to subvert resistance. 1984 has arrived and the plutocracy is in charge, and most are totally unaware of just how deep the tentacles reach. They don't want you to have this book. There have been broken deals and even indirect threats designed to stop Gotcha from being published. Set for release in September, you can pre-order it now at the discount price of $19.88, with free freight to anywhere in the world. For details, go to eldentaylor.com forward slash gotcha. Don't wait, get your copy while you can. That's eldentaylor.com forward slash gotcha. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Don Delvecchio about her life, work, and book, Spirit, Mind, and Money. Now, Don, we just played your second musical choice, Hard to Handle uh-huh. by the Grateful Dead. How hard to handle are you? <laughs> That's a great question. I guess you'd have to ask my husband about that. <laughs> <laughs> Why is this one meaningful to you? Because it is the funkiest, most danceable, most happy song that I've ever come across. I love it. I love to dance to it. That particular song was from before my time as a deadhead on tour, but it is, uh, it's a fave, a fave to dance to. When I need energy or inspiration, I just turn that on real loud and dance. So you have clearly in your mind the first time this song really moved you, where you were, what you were doing, da-da-da, right? You know, that's a good question. I don't think I remember the very first time. It, it wasn't at a concert because, again, this was that's from 1972, I think. So 
before my time. Uh, no, yeah, not the first, but but it wasn't before the first time you heard it. No, the first time I heard, it, I was. I'm sure it was in those early Deadhead years, and I probably was at a party and just the music danced me. Yeah, be interesting to know what happened at that party. You know, psychologist in <laughs> me has to look at that kind of stuff. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> money, it said, leads to power, and absolute power absolutely corrupts, or so, again, goes the saying. Is this true in your mind? And if not, why not? Especially when we live in a world dominated more and more by the rule of what might be called a plutocracy. Uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely, and lots of money can lead to absolute power. Agreed. And there's a big gap between living in abundance and prosperity and, you know, living, living well and living in absolute power. The people who are, there, there's, there's an awakening happening of holistic healers, practitioners, spiritual people, uh, astrologers, yogis, etc. Our goal has nothing to do with power and controlling others. Our goal is to bring a new, more enlightened message to the planet, to the people we feel on a full level here to serve. So by us having enough money to live well and to serve generously does not lead to corruption and power. Right. Again, but going it, back and it to takes the money, I said, money expands who you are. And it takes money to fulfill that vision, the vision it of does. bringing more enlightenment, uh, information, uh, uh, opportunities, etc. That takes money. So my question, I guess, is do you think people conflate the issue? That is, they think of money in its worst use, and that that tends to have them push it away from them and thereby deprive them of the better use. Absolutely. That's exactly the problem. And that's exactly the problem I address in the section of the book called Money, Spirit, Mind, right. and Money. The third section, right. All right, let's delve into your book. To begin with, you folk, your focus is really on holistic businesses. But for our listening audience, just as a matter of curiosity, wouldn't your methods work just as well, uh, both for the average person out there and for the major corporations, Coca-Cola, Hewlett-Packard, General Motors, and so forth? Uh, to the first, I'd say yes, indeed. It really is a message for anyone who is a small business owner uh, who is not answering to the demands of corporate shareholders. So there's a distinction there. Okay. Is the message valuable for uh, for corporations, these big name corporations? I, I don't. I I certainly didn't intend it to, and I don't really see how it could. As long as corporations are beholden to their shareholders who are looking at bottom line profits, their agenda is very very different than the yeah, solo business owner who just wants to do well in the world and do well by their customers. Okay, so now let's let's clear some things here. We have uh, corporate officers who are charged legally with the obligation of making money for the corporation. 
So sometimes their decisions, for all intent and purposes, are not the best decisions for all concerned. They're rather selfish decisions for their stockholders. And as such, they may do things that harm or are harmful to a large number of people, but it still profits their corporation and the 401ks, the people that are invested, etc., in that free trading stock. That's one use of money. Mm -hmm. There's another use of money, and that's where your focus is, and that's the small business person who is not intent on making money as much as they are intent on providing service. Have I got that right so far? Yes. Then isn't there also built into that proposition the notion that, well, you know, money isn't all that good. It's only good if I can do good. I mean, isn't there also some inhibition built into the definition that I don't intend to make as much money as I can. I intend to help as many people as I will want, as as I can. And I ask that question from a personal side because I have made many decisions in my own business over the past 40 years that I think have been not necessarily in the best interest of the business. We give away a lot of product, and uh, we try to help in a lot of areas. And I you know, could have done more by way of profit if I'd have looked at business differently. And I'm very aware of how major corporations work because I also do some, you know, I, I, I've had the privilege of working with Fortune 500 execs. So this seems to be, you know, something that they balance as well. They try to balance. You know, mm-hmm. where is the balance, Don? The, the balance is probably not static. We're imperfect beings doing the best we can. And I do believe we have the right to live in abundance, to live in joy, to get vacations, to gift our children with good things like organic food or whatever our values are. And because of the people that I am speaking to are by their nature the ones who give and overgive and give to the point of empty vessel, I really am wanting to communicate the other part of the message, which is that's all well and good, and if you make more money, you'll be able to serve more people. And you have a right to do things like go on a vacation, Buy organic food, get a massage, enjoy your life, live also for this life that is yours, a precious gift. Okay, let me ask you this. This is kind of where I'm trying to go, and maybe you can define this for me. You know, when I look into the world, I generally find a spirit in everything in the world. Now, by spirit, I don't mean that quintessential spirit that we think of as, you know, life force so much as I see in a painting the spirit that was imbued uh, by the artist in that painting and in a uh, in a home, uh, that of the architect and the builders and, and the handymen that were involved in building that home. I see spirit in most things. So my question to you is, does money have a spirit? If it does, how do you define it? 
money have a spirit? Hmm. I haven't thought about that. I would say this. When you go around chanting a mantra that says, money's not important to me, the spirit, if you will, if you want to use it in the, the terms in which you're using it, the spirit right. of money will say, okay, I'll go somewhere else where I'm appreciated. So <laughs> in that sense, I, I guess, I suppose it is. It's, it's a system of exchange. It's an energy, right? It's an right. energy. You, We exchange. Sometimes you might have five pigs, but I don't need five pigs in exchange for my, my coaching for you. So you give me money in exchange, and then I can go buy three broccolis with it or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Right. It's, it's, right. right. In that sense, I suppose you could say there's a spirit to it. So where I'm getting to is I think we imbue money with a spirit. If we receive the money with gratitude and appreciation, um, it, it, it has a different value. I mean, you know, I, I, I've sold my sons this, and, I, and I, I've seen it repeatedly. When you find people who have very little money, they may wad it all up and it's in their front pocket, you know, and the denominations are commingled and, you know, and, and they're at the checkout stand and you see them unfolding it and it's all wadded up and some of it looks like it went through a washer and, and they're separating the denominations and to pay their bill. And I have never seen a person who had any money who treated money with that kind of disrespect. Ah. Uh. Yes. I have taught my boys, you know, you you separate that money by denominations, you straighten it if it's if it's bad. If you're at the bank and they give you a wadded bill, tell them you want another one. You know, you put it away, you respect it, because if you don't respect it, you'll never have it. Oh, I so agreed, and, and Eldon, that brings up a memory recently of me gifting someone something. And it, actually, a person I've gifted several times something, and share. her inability. What's that? I say share. Tell us the story. Ah, uh, yes. So uh, she was. I I gifted her two different times something, and each time the energy was the inability to receive. Oh, I'll I'll save these and share them at work tomorrow. Oh, I'm going to put this over here, and if someone else, it's outside. But if someone wants to take it, that's okay. And, and while that wasn't about money in particular, it did have something to do with the ability to receive and to pause and say, thank you. I honor this. And Please. I have an, um, a mentor who says, you know, if, you, if you're imagining you're going to have a whole bunch of money come into one personal bank account, you're crazy. You, <laughs> you have to set up the right circumstances for the wealth to come in in the form of business entities, bank accounts, etc. And this speaks to the same thing you're talking about, honoring that that energy, that spirit of money, uh, being appreciative and being able to receive. Revenue streams, added revenue streams. Okay. In the setup piece, yeah, I quoted some of your copy uh, introducing you. One of the the quotes basically says that, you know, you struggled with uh, finances until you had a different mindset. So let's do this. Let's go to your book and unpack some of that mindset. Part one of your book is designed to examine the spirit of your business. 
Please flesh this out for us. What, what do you mean by that? Yes. The spirit of your business is both the, the, the soul movement expression, the desire, the, I know that I'm here to fill in the blank. That, that's part of it. But the other part of the spirit of your business, in the sense I'm writing about it here as a business consultant and uh, marketing coach, is how do you communicate that message in a way that actually makes sense to the people you want to reach, the people you want to serve? Because if you use language that's about your expertise or modality or that's about you and not about them and their problems, you won't reach them. So it's really coaching. The first part of the book is it, it's about communicating the spirit of your business in a way that's clear, compelling, and authentic to the people you're here to serve. So do you, do you when you're advising someone, do you have them sit down, write a mission statement in which they incorporate the spirit of what their business is? I do it a little differently than that. And actually, in the book, there's a whole exercise. It's called Create Your Compelling Message, and it's a four-step process that people actually go through to understand and identify with the language uh, of their ideal client, of the person, of the people they want to reach, so that they can communicate to them. So let me, let me use an example. Um, Please do. Okay. So, for example, uh, let's say you are... Uh, a massage therapist, or some kind of other body worker, and you specialize in... I like to work on uh, bodies. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and you specialize in um, car accident injury, like the, the pain, that the post-trauma pain, and, and helping people with that. And you can do, as a massage therapist, with maybe some other complementary modalities that you're certified in, you, can, you know you do a lot of good with a lot of different kind of people. But this okay. is your, these are the people that you really know you're here to serve and help because they're in a lot of pain. Okay. You can talk about your expertise, but that's not going to make a difference because they just want to know, can I get some relief from the pain in my neck that I have to live with every day of my life? And you want to speak to them in that language and you want to communicate that message to them in a way that makes them pick up the phone and call you because they know and understand that you understand their needs. Let me ask you this, Don. I know your book is written for, you know, small businesses, particularly holistic businesses, people who want to give back. Uh, but, you know, I, I've, I've often believed that... The, you can see, you can define success by the level of integrity people bring to their labors. So, you can have a good plumber and you can have a bad plumber. You can have a good attorney, you can have a bad attorney. You can have a lazy doctor and you can have a, a really good physician. And, and the difference between them is usually not their skill set or their education as much as it is their dedication, their, the integrity they bring to it. Are they coming, are they doing what they're doing to the very best of their ability? And what I've seen is that when people do things to the very best of their ability, they not only prosper, but they generally, you know, uh, the, the the plumber, for example, who 
does things to the very best of his ability. Someone puts their arm around him and says, you know, you're really good at this. You need to have your own business. How can I help you set it up? Or he, he, he does set up his own business. Do you feel that people that are in jobs, let's talk about just, you know, the average listener out there, because most people are not creating their own business. Um, people that are in jobs, can they use your tools and techniques? Can they take this system and do well in their own jobs to the point where they're able to create their own business and or be promoted within the work that they have? Yes, absolutely, because the principles of personal development, of addressing subconscious habits of thought, relationship to money, all uh, how you treat the value of your services, all of that is addressed in the book. And I would also say that uh, integrity does not necessarily mean success in terms of a business owner because you still have to treat your business like a business. So for people who are in a job, and maybe are toying with the idea of one day owning a business or simply want to master their skills and, and do it in a way where they can rise through the ranks of their company or get a better job or whatever, you can absolutely use this and also understand some of the foundational principles of treating your business like a business so that you can make a determination whether that's something you'd want to do or not. Right. To me, in, in integrity in the workforce is just... Are you doing the best that you can? And I mean, you know, if if whatever you're doing, is it your best or are you just trying to, you know, get through the day and get your paycheck and do as little as you have to do? Uh, to me, that's integrity in the in the workforce. OK, so you have four points that an individual would begin with if they were to flesh out the spirit of what it is that they do. What are those four points? Oh, the, the four steps, you mean, for yeah. mm-hmm. compelling four message. Four steps, yeah. Okay. Yeah, let me. Actually, I don't have it memorized, so I'm going to pull it up here. The first <laughs> thing is book. to get clear on your purpose. Right. And that, I, I like to have people do that through a stream of consciousness writing. So you don't pick the pen up off the paper. You just write, the purpose of my business is, the purpose of my business is, the purpose of my business is. It's just an exercise to really drill down into your uh like uh your your, your consciousness your, your your heart really your heart in right. the sense of so, your, your true so feeling. now we we could also adapt that to the purpose of my employment is the purpose of my employment is the purpose of my employment is yeah if i were working or for someone else right the purpose of my work in the world yeah, yeah good so, okay. so absolutely some people feel absolutely this is their purpose they are on tap right. as an employee so and right. then then you list the benefits what are the benefits that you'll provide? And benefits, you know, there's there's initial upfront benefits and then there's tertiary benefits, right? So those initial benefits are whatever the results are. But a lot of times there's other benefits, like people go home and they're happier with their family if they're out of pain. Or when people start uh, don't have to deal with their screwy plumbing anymore, they are free to, you know, go about their life and focus on their good work in the world. So there's those benefits. And then we look at the audience. Who am I here to serve? What is the obstacle, frustration, need that they have, or pain is a way to put it, that I can solve for them? And really getting clear on who that is. And then once you gather all that information, you really go back to purpose and begin to marry it all together and really see how it becomes one 
simple message that speaks to your ideal audience. When when you talk about benefit, benefit often is um, you know it is service. I mean, I, I I tend to think about what we do by way of you know let's again the best plumber is doing the very best that they can, bringing their best. That's how I use integrity uh, to the service of an individual. And even though you know we may think of that as uh, you know all he's doing is fixing my sink, so uh, you know it goes down the drain. There's still a great deal of satisfaction that comes about uh, as a result of solving someone's problem, as as, re- as a result of providing a service. Do you put emphasis on the service side of the benefit in this exercise? Yes, absolutely. And most of the people I work with, they already get that part of it. They already understand that piece of it, that they are already getting the satisfaction from solving the problem. Sometimes what they don't see is all the secondary benefits. Like if we've got our plumber, hey, my water bill is going to go down. Um, I'm going to be able to, when I wake up in the middle of the night, I don't stay awake because I hear drip, 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 drip. Uh, I don't have that puddle underneath my refrigerator anymore where my four-year-old can slip on it. So I have them unpack it even more to really see the depth and breadth of the value they are actually bringing to their work. Because a lot of times, holistic business owners or service-based providers, the challenge we have is recognizing how valuable that service actually is. That's a very good point, a very good point. Again, the book is Spirit, Mind, and Money, a new conversation about service and success for the holistic business owner. You can find this book right now at Amazon. I know for a fact you can pre-order it there. The author is Don DelVecchio, who we have been talking to. Uh, And, Don, we have another break. So when we get back, uh, we'll pick it up and we'll go to part two of your book. Uh, I think one of the more important parts, we've we've been in and out of it, kind of weaving a story, that of the mind. We're glad you tuned in today. We know you have many choices, and we're grateful you chose to join us. We love your feedback, so please join me on Facebook. And or drop me an email at Eldon at EldonTaylor.com. I love sharing your letters and comments on the show. And that's a great way for you to participate. We'll be right back following this short break. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. A silent battle has been raging for the territory of your mind. Like a virulent virus, the effects are spreading. In Gotcha, Elton Taylor explores the 24-7 bombardment of information designed to manage your thinking. He demonstrates how new sound bites are championed into personal awareness, becoming memes of the culture, and this results in framing and reframing classical positions, thereby causing adjustments to personal values and history itself. Your every decision process is being managed and manipulated. Gotcha exposes the arrival of the Orwellian age in full-blown technicolor. In laying bare the current uses of the many sophisticated techniques, Eldon reveals what it is we need to do in order to avoid allowing others to puppet our thoughts. Set for release in September, you can pre-order now at the discount price of $19.88, with free freight to anywhere in the world. For details, go to eldentaylor.com forward slash gotcha. Hi, I'm Eldon Taylor, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me. 
as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor, that's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. We've been chatting with Don Del Vecchio about her life, work, and book, Spirit, Mind, and Money. In this half hour, we will take your call. So if you have questions, give us a call or adventure comments and questions in our chat room. And remember, I love your feedback, and a great place for that is on Facebook, so I invite you to join me there today. All right, Don, we just played your third musical choice, Kopala, by Jay Udall and the Pagan Love Orchestra. I think this is the Hindi language. Do you speak Hindi? Don? Hi there, Don? can you hear me now? I can hear you Hi. now. What would you do? No. Drop your phone? Sorry about that. No, I, That's I, all right. I put it on mute before. So, uh, okay. I, yeah. <laughs> so, do no, you I speak the Hindi, Hindi language? No, I don't speak Hindi. I do know a lot of Sanskrit terms because of 
my Asia connection, my study, I have a, a whole another part of me that we haven't discussed about uh, my studies of Southeast of India's artistic and, and cultural legacy in Southeast Asia and, and India itself and the culture well, and all a, of that. Isn't this a Krishna prayer? It is a Krishna prayer. It's actually, that's not the version I was... I meant when I sent it to you, but it's okay because it's still it's still the Asia connection for me, which is the meaning behind it for me. That's that's the meaning. That's that's what it means to you is that connection. Now, yes. You, you, since we're on this subject, you indicated earlier that you, you know, as a fluke, threw out Buddhism to your mother when you said you weren't Catholic. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> so did you become Buddhist? No, no, I, I do not ascribe to any specific, what we would call the major religion. Okay. And I have studied Buddhism extensively in Southeast Asia, because I lived in Thailand for a number of years and have traveled to all the Buddhist countries there. Uh, mm-hmm. So I've studied Buddhism, Hinduism, um, probably Asian religion, those two more than any others, uh, and but to say that I'm Buddhist, no. I ascribe to some of the principles. I find them very valuable, including, of course, meditation. And mindfulness, uh, of course. I agree. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's get to your book because we're short on time mm-hmm. now. We've, we're in our last half hour, and, and I want people to get a, a, a full flavor of what it is that they're going to find when they get your book. Uh, mm-hmm. Part two of your book deals with the mind. Uh, the focus, you know, employs... Um, I guess the way to, to, to I'm going to let you define the chapter as opposed to me do it. Unpack your ideas, what you mean by the mind and its role with money. Yes. So in the context of this book, I'm using the term mind to refer to the way our mind develops strategies for business, i.e. marketing. Right. So, This is the manual section of the book, and as I say in the book, for the people who either maybe they don't have a business yet or they're really grappling with the money issues and that's the hot button for them and they're not ready to look at marketing yet, they can skip this part first and then go back to it when they're ready to implement. This is the action portion of the book. It's when we look at offline and online marketing tools and strategies for putting yourself out there in the world, for taking the spirit of your work and your message and putting it out into the public arena in order to bring in clients and customers. You know, more and more people today are finding uh, revenue sources vis-a-vis the Internet. Uh, Mm -hmm. Let's go back to our examples uh, earlier. You can have that plumber. Uh, who also, you know, has an online business of sorts. Maybe their hobby is lapidary work. And so they have, you know, stones and, and they cut and they polish agate and crystal and, and, um, so on and so forth. And they, they offer that through the internet. 
the guidance that you provide in your book for the average person out there who maybe has thought about, you know, I could start a business on the Internet. I wouldn't have to give up my full-time job. I'd still have my source of income. I could, you know, I could define myself maybe this way, get a revenue stream going, see if it's really going to work out, da-da-da. Do you feel that the guidance you provide in the book would be sufficient for them to take a hold of and to start their own little business vis-a-vis the Internet? Sufficient. Yes, it's sufficient, and there's more, depending on what their business is. The thing to understand about... Yeah, the thing to understand about the Internet is it is a phenomenal tool for reach, and it's a long-term strategy unless you have boatloads of bucks to throw at it. So, uh, you know, you, you, you've got your website and you, you, you've got your social media and you've got to get in front of people, which means you have to probably invest in some way of doing that, like what we call traffic. In other words, eyeballs on your website. And then you have to know how to make those offers and all of that stuff. This is why in the book I teach offline strategies first, because the lowest hanging fruit, so to speak, is to get in conversations with people in your community. And it is possible to build a business online. For example, my daughter-in-law, or daughter-in-law-to-be, creates beautiful, what she calls, upcycled festival clothing. So she she gets secondhand clothes, and she cuts them apart, and she makes new, groovy clothing for kids who like to go to concerts and festivals and things. And she Uh has a little Etsy shop. You know what Etsy is? Uh Uh-huh. Etsy is for crafts. And she's doing okay. She's beginning to get some sales that way. But it's a slow process of over time getting more and more people to see her little Etsy store and begin to buy from her. So longe- And all of that revolves around a, a rabbit hole of complexity that has to do with search engine optimization and other geeky stuff that's more than we can get into here. Suffice okay, it to now, say that if you do want to have a business online, you do want to start with the foundations that I teach in the book. Absolutely. And you're going to want to go beyond that once you establish this. Right. And for what it's worth, your website is uh, complete with um, extra materials uh, and access to courses that you do, etc. Do you... Do you have secondary materials in mind to follow up on Spirit, Mind, and Money? Indeed. Actually, at some point, I'm going to offer a a training course for the next step. And then I have other supplemental materials, too, but my main one is is that I I coach with people. And then I've got a couple, I've got a few programs, but they're still, again, very beginner. So when you're ready to take it to the next level, it's really about getting mentorship and coaching, and it doesn't have to be with me. I mean, really, the thing is, if you want to run a business and you're doing it on, on, um, you're doing it yourself, you want to get a coach. I mean, even the most professional sports people, athletes, have coaches. Coaching is just a part of the investment in growing the business of your business. Okay, let's uh, let's jump to um, the third component, part three, as you call it, the money itself. You tell a story uh, at the beginning of chapter seven. Uh, it's all about anger. 
You know, do you want to share that story with us? Yes, I call it the anger that heals. So this is a personal story. I share some different people's stories and, and a few of my own. I had a friend who knew that I was had been a professional writer. I was a, you know, a journalist before I was a copywriter. And she contacted me saying, hey, you know, like I, I need some... I need some work, and I need it done very quickly. Do you have some bandwidth, some availability to do that? And I was like, yeah, sure. And then she said, and I need it on a budget. And what happened for me, it was one of those uh, aha moments where I experienced anger. Anger rose up in me. And at first, I wasn't completely clear on what it was, but it didn't take me long to realize why I was angry. This was someone who knew that I had 10-plus years as a professional writer wanted me to drop whatever it was I was doing right now to make to make my own living, to take on her project, get it done quickly, and then pay me less for it so that she could make money. And to be clear, I wasn't angry at her. I mean, there was a little bit of that at first, but really the truth was I was angry at me because I got what I had been projecting, what I had been broadcasting in some kind of energetic way because I hadn't cleaned up my own relationship to money was that I'm willing to work for a pittance because I'm desperate just to get work. And it, even if it helps you make more money and it screws up my calendar and my schedule and my other plans, I'll do it because I need the money. And that was a watershed moment for me in looking at, God, I really have a problem here that I need to address because this is too painful to go through life like this. Do you think, Don? um... From my own experience, as I said earlier, we give a lot of product away, and uh, occasionally I have these situations where, um, you know, because you have given it to a person, it's unappreciated, so it's not used. Agreed. Um, do you, you know, do you find that attaching a value to it is important sometimes let me let me let me qualify this a little bit this way placebo research something we've done a fair amount of over here uh we know that i can give you a plain white pill and it'll be 20 to 25 percent effective if i give it to you with the authority that this is a you know med that will cure your situation if I put an initial on that pill, it'll become more effective. If it's a capsule, still more. If I colorize the capsule, and we even know what color to colorize it, still more. If it becomes an injection, you might get up to 75 to 80% effective with this placebo. Okay? that I mean, that rivals some medications. So, in other words, the higher the value perception-wise, the more powerful that placebo is. When you help someone, when you give someone something, do you think the same kind of attribute accompanies it? That is, if it's free, well, it must not be worth anything, but if it costs a lot, has that dressing of expense to it, it must be really golden. Do Do you think that you know, translates into services, not just products in what we do and how what we do is perceived? Yes, I do. And I see it slightly different, which is that when you have a best, when you when you put skin in the game, or maybe I just say it or frame it differently, 
when you put skin in the game, you're more invested in success. So um, as a business owner, for example, if you invest in the business of your business by getting a business coach, you the more you pay, the harder you'll work to make sure that you get the stuff done and are accountable to your work. As a receiver of services, that might translate a little bit differently, and I still think it, it, it holds true. If I just pay 20 bucks for a massage, I'm like, eh, eh, you know. I'm not, ah, maybe I let my mind wander more. But boy, when I go to a spa and I say I spend 150 bucks for an hour, you bet I'm going to be like, breathe, relax. Oh, the mind is wandering again. Go back to receiving, go back to receiving, and be more present with the experience. So when, you know, a, a Tony Robbins uh, charges $10,000 for an hour of coaching, uh, that's not such a bad deal, maybe. It depends on how big you want to play. Well, again, I mean, if you're going to lay out ten grand for that hour, you're going to make something of it. Just That's like right. maybe that placebo, right? Yes. Okay. All right. I, I've been dominating your time, and I need to turn to our chat room where there are questions. Okay. We have... You ready? We have this out of the chat room. There are many starving people who would say... Why aren't you enjoying your life? You have plenty of food and a bed to sleep in. Why do you need organic foods, massages, and vacations in order to be happy? Does this not prove that we perceive ourselves as being prosperous when we have more than others, not the same or less? I don't understand the actual question. Say that last part again, please. Does okay. this not prove... Yet, yeah, does this not prove that we perceive ourselves as being prosperous when we have more than others, not the same or less? Uh, I, I'm not really sure. I, I really I look at it from a different way, which is from the point of view, I would say higher on the, the Maslowian scale of need, which is self-actualization more than... Yes, I know that there are people who are living in, in terrible, terrible circumstances. It's not just. And we're here right now. So what is it that makes for fully living well? And to me, organic food is a value for me. And maybe it's not for other people because they say there are other people who don't get that benefit or it's not important to them. That's fine. To me, organic food is very important. I don't feel like I fully answered that question, but I'm still not quite clear on what the question is, I think. I think this particular question really, and, and this is me, my conjecture, is really um, taking a shot across the bow of prosperity. We tend to think of prosperity, we're prosperous when we have more than someone else has, and we're not prosperous if we have the same as someone else. I don't have the ability where the chat room is concerned to directly ask that question, but I think that's what it is. And what is your take on that? Uh, is prosperity all about having more than someone else? Oh, the comparison issue. No, I don't think it is at all. It's about the quality of your life. What is the quality of your life? If you're busy spending your weekends fixing your piece of crap car and cleaning your house, you know, upside down, inside out and backwards, and then devoting 60 hours a week to building a business, and you don't have time for your kids or your joy or your celebration because you feel in a state of drudgery from work, 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 or managing the, the things of life, and you can't 
uh, reach for the things that you want out of your life, then you're not having a quality of life. So what will it take for that? We live in a very expensive country here, and our food is being manipulated. I mean, I'm sorry to harp on the food thing, but it's just a really important value for me. It's true. And so it's loaded with GMOs and all kinds. Yeah. And right, if we but, don't but when that, you bring it... When you bring it to our country, Don, you know, we are really taught to be consumers. I mean, for all intent and purposes, we are plugged in in the very beginning to be consumers. And, you know, the automobile that you want next, the briefcase that you carry, the clothes that you wear, the makeup that you buy, and this applies to all of us. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what what I all of that is been sold to us. We've seen it in the media. We've seen it on the billboards. We we dress alike. Um, you know, we're all in competition to have the latest, the newest, the greatest. The new iPhone comes out, and they line up for blocks and miles. You know, uh, mm-hmm. we are a consumer nation. Do you think we get carried away with that? Absolutely. I started this conversation by saying I didn't relate to mainstream consciousness. Right. To me, free to me it's really all about freedom. How do you feel free and joyful in your life? Getting into consumer debt and more stuff is not freedom. That is not free. We know that. The people that I speak to, the community that this book is here to serve knows that that's not what it's about. It's about do I have time to wake up every day and meditate or do my spiritual practice? Do I have time to go to that yoga retreat because, boy, I would really love to give myself that? Do I have time? Can I afford the organic food? Uh, Whatever it is to you, it's about having that freedom to live a life that's healthy and full and holistic. The more we're addicted to stuff, the less we're connected with our authentic self. I I think it's, for me, it's also about... Yeah, having the ability to participate in helping with charitable causes. You know, one of the things we do. I mean, you know, if you can feed the migrants uh, on Thanksgiving Day uh, by donating $1,000 to an organization that would do that, the feeling that you get out of that, just driving by and seeing them all eating, you know, it, it, to me, it's it's worth so much more than a thousand dollars that it's unbelievable. I mean, yeah. so I think a lot of what wealth is about is your ability to help others. And the first time I donated to Kiva, do you know Kiva dot org is yeah, where you yeah. do microfinancing? Yeah. I was able to donate a hunk of money, and I cried. Nah, I. I <laughs> I relate. We we mm-hmm. all have our favorite charities, and they they can bring tears to your eyes. Listen, Don, uh, I want everybody to know how to get a hold of you, how to learn more about you, where they can get the book, when the book's official release is, uh, is happening. Uh, so take a minute and tell us. Share all that with us. Yes. The best way to reach me right now, up until August 19th, is via my website, which is my name, dondelvecchio.com, D-A-W-N-D-E-L-V as in Victor, E-C-C-H-I-O.com, that's one word. And uh, my book will be available on Amazon. I know you said that you saw it as a pre-order. It's not supposed to be, actually. So I was surprised to hear that, and maybe it is, but... If you go to dondelbecchio.com, you can also access a free gift uh, that I have to to offer people that's there. And, of course, be apprised when the book launches on August 19th. 
on August 19th. Now, what goes along with the book launch? Do you have one of these? Uh, you giving away all the all the farm goes along with uh, it? No, no. <laughs> I have another free gift that will be available to people who are interested, and the book, I think we're doing it. I have a team that's helping me. It'll be by Kindle for 99 cents on the first day, and then the next day the physical copy will be available. Oh, and it's cool. about 240-ish pages long. Okay. The book, again, is Spirit, Mind, and Money. And I want to thank you for your work, Don, and for your willingness to share it with us all. We've thank come to you. the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. And I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.